Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open to Hebrews chapter 4. If you want to follow along on the Bible app, you can do that. Uh, go ahead and open it up, hit more, hit events, find this humble gathering right here and click on it. And you can follow along with the bouncing ball as we go through the morning. Um, we're here in a series called Truish. And as the term implies, we're looking at things that we say uh, these days and we often believe these days that are kind of true, but they're kind of not true. So when you drink half the truth, if it say it's half false, half true, there are a lot of things that if I gave to you and you drank them, if it was half fruit punch and half of something else, you would either be disgusted uh, or it could be toxic to you, depending on what it was. Truth is one of those things that we're going to do best if we try to get it down and distill it to its purest form. And the way that the Bible describes truth is that truth is a person. It's Jesus. It's who he is, what he said, what he taught, his essence. Everything about him is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He actually is the truth incarnate. So you can't say you love Jesus and not love the truth. They go together. And so this is a, a series really about uh, trying to dispel some of the myths and the rumors of our current age and to take a look at how the Bible frames some of those discussions uh, so that we can get back to the truth instead of, oh, drinking a truth-false cocktail, if you will. Uh, this is a big, big uh, one today. It's called, You Wouldn't Understand. That's our truishism of the day. I'll begin with this. In the month of October, the Spivey family has about a 10-day run, where we have, it's actually an 8-day run, no, it's a 10-day run, uh, where there are three birthdays in our house. Uh, apparently, our, our parents loved each other uh, on the same timeline, uh, and so we are all born <laughs> roughly within about a, a week or so of each other. And so you have myself, you have Emily, and you have Olivia, my middle daughter, who just turned 15 a couple of days ago, all in one, yeah, I know, she looks like she's 10, uh, we can still take her and cheat and have her eat off the kids menu and nobody asks any questions she'll probably be um so uh we have this little tradition in our house and it was emily's idea emily uh when she was growing up on your birthday everybody would walk in to your room and sing happy birthday to you while you were asleep and wake you up okay and they would film it okay so when you're a kid let's just let's just take this from different perspectives when you're a child uh, you want to sleep as little as possible, right? So if somebody comes and wakes you up, that's a win, really. I mean, that means more life, you're excited, and whatever. And it makes you feel special because everybody's singing, you know, happy birthday to you or whatever. So if you're four, that's awesome. Okay. When you're 44, like I'm going to be uh, tomorrow morning. Yeah, well, no, no, no. There's nothing to clap about. You can feel bad for me if you want, but don't, don't, don't say congratulations. Um, <laughs> I turned 44 in the morning, and I will tell you this, on a Monday after a Sunday where I've preached and I get home from growth group maybe 9 o'clock, 9.30, if you come into my room and you wake me up and you are not either the archangel of the Lord or, <laughs> or Jesus of Nazareth come back, uh, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. There will be no joy in that house, uh, and if you want to film it, you're filming your own demise <laughs> on the web, okay? Um, and the reason is, when you're 44, sleep is like, like, like gold. Sleep is especially Mondays, man. 
There's a reason that they sang about Manic Monday, man. The Bengals preaching straight truth through that song. Mondays are rough, and when you're in the ministry, Mondays are, are real rough. You wake up feeling like you've been in a car accident or something. And so if somebody comes in and wakes me up, I want my kids just once to feel like me. Woken up by them feeling the way I do. Physically. Right? When you're young, you can stay up late, you can get up early, stay up late, get up early, stay up late, get, early, get up early or whatever. You can keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. No problem whatsoever. Okay, when you're my age, you need to go to bed early and wake up late. Or at least if you're going to get up early, you've got to go to bed on the earlier side. I want them to know what it feels like to be me. Kids, can I get a witness from you? Wouldn't it be nice if your parents felt the way that you felt when they kept nagging you? Preach. Oh, I heard a preach. I'm not going to look at that child because they're going to be in danger if I do. Okay, That desire to have people feel the way you feel. I just want you to know what it's like to be me. Oh, if just once you would feel what it's like to be me. And when somebody that we care about is hurting, what do we want to do? We want them to feel like we're with them. We want them to feel like we understand that we're with them. In our world, we call that empathy, right? Nothing wrong with empathy. Empathy is a beautiful thing. Uh, in fact, some of the way the Scripture teaches encourages us very much to be empathetic. The term never really pops up in the Bible, never really pops up in the English language until about uh, 120 years ago. Uh, it's the feel with. It's different than sympathy. Sympathy is, boy, that happened from a distance. I kind of say, boy, I really feel sorry for them. Empathy is, I'm in it, man. I'm, I empathize because I've been there. I've, I've done the same thing as you have. I'm, you know, I have had my kids wake me up on my birthday, too, and I hate it. You know, that kind of, that's empathy. Sympathy is, oh man, I can't believe they woke him up on his birthday. Now, I've never had the experience myself. Okay, now, what we're going to look at today, I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I'm going to, I'm going to slay some sacred cows in the world we live in. Now, as one author put it, you know, sacred cows make gourmet burgers, if we're willing to eat them. These, uh, the way that we are, that Satan is getting into the heads of Christians these days is mind-boggling. He really is the father of lies. And he has a way of serving those up in such a way that they feel right, but they're wrong. Jesus says, now, first of all, can you guys tell me what the golden rule is? Somebody just say it out loud. Does anybody know the golden rule? Treat others the way you'd want to be treated is how we say it in our culture. Now, in Matthew seven twelve, it actually says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets, Matthew 7, 12. Now, Matthew twenty two thirty nine 39 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in both cases, he's appealing to our sense of loving ourselves. He assumes that nobody loves us like us. Love your neighbor as yourself is a way of saying you love yourself more than you love anybody else. Love your neighbor that way. It's almost like he knows this. Or, in Matthew seven twelve, do... Other, to others, whatever you would like them to do to you is a way of simply saying, you obviously are so invested in yourself that think about the way you would want to be treated and then treat others that way. It's actually kind of, a, of an empathetic way of going at things and looking at things. Okay, imagine what it would feel like now do something to your neighbor that, that is in response to that, okay? We want to be treated so well that if we treat other people that way, 
we will obey all the law and the prophets. It's God's way of setting forth our highest treatment of other people. Our love for ourselves, while very good and healthy when it's done in proper measure, can also lead us away from others when we're hurting or in trouble or when we want answers for something. Empathy, of course, means to feel with. Now, at its best, it helps us be compassionate to other people. It helps us to offer our own journey to them as a way of saying, I know what you're going through. You are not alone. I get it. But when it's weaponized, it becomes a way of dismissing truth and sometimes covering our ears in response to those that we don't feel like understand. As though, if you don't empathize with me, what you're saying is untrue. As though I can dismiss you if you haven't been through what I've been through. And that's where things get interesting. Because really, most things in the world are true or not true, not based on who's delivering the message. If somebody walk, kid walks in here and says, Hey, uh, Pastor Tim, there's somebody at the door that wants to talk to you. Do I look at him and say, Well, I'm sorry, you've never been a pastor before. Um, I'm sorry. So wait, go find a pastor to tell me the same thing, and then I'll believe it. But as long as you are who you are, I can't believe you. Okay, another person walks in. They're an adult. They tell me the same thing. Ah, you know what? That's okay, but you're, you're 35. I'm going to be 44. You're younger than me. Go find a 44-year-old uh, pastor. And, and then another person walks in. And I start breaking it down by everything. Age, race, political affiliation, gender. I mean, just go on right down the list to the point that guess who I'm willing to listen to? Myself. <laughs> so I can keep lying to myself. And that leads me into that dark place where I feel like nobody understands, when in reality, I don't understand. You see the difference? It's not that nobody else understands. It's that I don't understand that the truth is not defined by me in the way I feel. The truth exists whether I believe it or not. The sky will be blue whether I call it red or not. Whether it can empathize with me. It is what it is. God is who he is. Now, we, when we're suffering or when we're facing trials, when we see other people doing the same, we've always had a tendency to feel as though we, we are alone and as though we're the only ones who have a problem or that perhaps we have more trials than the next person that they wouldn't understand. And that's how it feels sometimes. I've certainly felt that way at times. And then you add on top of it that we live in a world where we are told that all of these other categories matter that they determine what the truth is. Your truth, we talked about that, that kind of myth in week one. Live your truth, like, like there's multiple kinds out there. We're told that our race or our gender or sexual orientation, our politics determine our identity rather than our identity in Christ. And that unless you are exactly what I am, what you have to say is of less value. Now God's word would say that's a lie and that where our identity comes from is from the foot of the cross. It comes from Jesus. And that when our identity becomes this, this bubble of groupthink based on a fake identity, that wisdom is going to miss us. So we've gotten to a point now that a lot of our conversations start sounding like odd, odd resumes. People introduce themselves as they make a comment. As a, and then fill in the blank, I want to say that this and this and this and this happens. Why not just say that's your opinion? 
We do it because we know it adds weight to what we're saying. Because if I can check the boxes, you'll, you'll, you must accept what I'm saying because I can check the boxes. Now, what you're saying may be complete garbage. But as long as you can check the boxes, then we're going to accept it as truthful. And so we take that as then as truth or your truth or whatever, and we totally miss what God might have to say to us. So here's why this matters, people. Because how we see ourselves shapes the way we see other people and the way we see God. It also shapes what we are willing to listen to and how we see the truth. It's vitally important. What makes something true? To whom should we listen? That's our subject for the morning. Open your Bible to the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is written to a group of suffering Christians. So there's actually a fair amount on there about strengthening yourself. Strengthen your weak hands and your feeble knees. Chip up little buckaroo. But there's also a lot about sympathy as well. There we go. God didn't like the last part, and then he said, I'll give you another shot. He turned it back on. Um, so you're there in, 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 in the book of Hebrews, which is really the most profound book of the New Testament, in my opinion. Most pastors would say it's either Hebrews or Romans, and, and they'll fist fight over this kind of thing. So you have your Hebrews people and your Romans people. I tend to be a Hebrews guy. They're both wonderful in their own way. But Hebrews is, is just magnificent. And it gets so stinking deep, and that's when they call timeout, and they say, you know what? I would love to be able to explain more to you, but I can't, because by now you should be more grown up than you are. You need milk, not solid food, so... Uh, we're going to stay here, and I'm going to spoon-feed you uh, the rest of this, okay? He's saying, no, you wouldn't understand. See, we think that when things go on in life, God doesn't understand. No, he understands. What happens now is, what, what the Bible says is, no, you, you don't understand. I wish you could understand. I wish I could help you understand, but I can't. And then... Uh, here in Scripture, they try to get us to understand. Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, we're going to read here. This is talking about the Word of God, which he's going to say is trans-experience. It's beyond your experience, okay, in its truthfulness. Verse 12, for the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Listen to this. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands... Oh. He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So we're just going to take it bit by bit here. First thing he says is God's word is greater than our experience. It is not passe. It is alive, it's living, it's active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It judges our innermost thoughts and desires. It's the judge. There is something greater than, something beyond my own 
worldview, above my own experience. There is a truth that transcends my own. And God's word transcends me. Now, this is good news for a variety of reasons, because now, all of a sudden, truth becomes something that is not an arm wrestling match between power groups here on earth. There's something outside of me, something beyond me, that's taller, bigger, stronger, and speaks truth to me, judging my innermost motives. Who are you to judge me? Nobody on earth, but the Word of God will. God's Word will judge me. And He knows my motives. So I can say my motives are this, God's Word will tell me the truth. God knows whether or not I'm being truthful. He knows my innermost thoughts and desires. What this text would suggest to us is that we have no right to determine our own truth, but that it's determined by God's standard and not our own. He goes on to say nothing is hidden from Him. He sees past our categories. He sees past our disguises. He sees it all. And so the question then becomes not so much how does God, uh, you know, can God understand me? The question is can I, can I understand how God feels about the way I'm living? See, we're great at asking other people to empathize with us. I wonder if I'm always as empathetic toward God and the way he feels about things as I should be or could be. Writer then adds, Jesus doesn't change. He watches over us and he understands our trials. He was tried in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. So when we're facing trials, we go to the throne of grace, not the throne of human empathy, to find grace to help us when we need it most. Empathy does not determine the truth. In fact, when it's used inappropriately, it is the mother of self-deception. It creates echo chambers. After all, that's asked the question, is it always a good thing for me to listen to people who have the same experience? If I'm struggling, for instance, with an addiction, is the best advice I'm going to get from another addict? No. Now, is it going to be, can it be helpful for somebody who was an addict and then escaped it? Sure, but I haven't escaped it yet. Sometimes, when I'm feeling all beat up or picked on, what I don't need is somebody else to go, yeah, you're beat up and picked on. Sometimes I need somebody to say, Spivey, grow up, dude. Stop being so selfish. Now, I can easily go at that point, you just don't understand. Which then gives me the chance to discount what they said. But the real question is, are they right? Are they right? Is that, in fact, the medicine I need? Or will I only accept medicine from doctors who have the same disease I've got? You see how it can work? Now, empathy, I want to be really clear about this. This is not a don't empathize with anybody thing. No, 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 no. It's not that. What I'm talking about is empathy stepping in as a substitute for truthfulness. I mean, I could, again, I thought about doing this, actually, having people stand up, everybody stand up, and don't do it. Everybody stand up in the room, and then just one by one, I'd list off a bunch of categories, and you sit down if you fit, if you don't fit the category. And eventually, all I've got left is me, or I've got people who look exactly like I do. Now, does anybody in the room think that the best way to gain wisdom is to find people just like yourself to listen to? 
The best ideas I've ever gotten are outside the bubble. The spivey bubble. The spubble. <laughs> okay, it's outside the spubble. And when we're sinning, and when we're in a dysfunctional place, surrounding ourselves with fellow dysfunctional people when we're dysfunctional is not a good idea. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and through 34 says, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. Uh, wasn't that long ago? It's been longer than I thought, though, now that I think about it. Uh, I can remember being on a cell phone call with uh, a woman who had been a very close friend of our family's. Been through a lot of stuff together. She had made the decision that she was going to leave her husband and their child for another guy. And she was wanting me to consider doing the wedding for her and the new guy. And I told her I was going to take a pass on that. All right, now, after everything we'd been through, uh, I had been told that, that she was one by one kind of isolating herself from her group of friends. And so when I told her I was going to do it, then she says, then you're not my friend. Now, I think to myself about all the different things that I have done for this particular individual and how we saw this person through all sorts of stuff. But to hear the phrase, well, if you won't do it, then you're not my friend, was interesting. You ever, hear, ever feel that way? You ever tell somebody something that, and I told her why. Told her we love you, but I can't, I, can't, I can't be a part of that. I can't endorse that as though that's something God's pleased with. Can't do it. That was the last time we spoke. Did it feel good? No. Did it make me question myself a little bit? Did I go, well, maybe if I had just talked to her more, she would have understood? Well, we'd talked ad nauseum before that. But then the question becomes, all right, can I empathize with God here? Not can I empathize with her. Can I empathize with God? So if I get up and do that, how is God going to feel? I know she'll feel better. How's God going to feel if I do that? And so what the Hebrews text screams at me is, when I'm facing a, a difficult situation in relationship to another person, the question is not first, how do they feel? It's how will God feel if I do X, Y, Z? Because at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, your desire is to please God. It's to hear the well done of God. The Bible says in the last days, people will gather around them, those who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. That things like that are going to happen, where people are going to say, you know what? I don't agree with that, so I'm going to go to a, a different church, or I'm going to go to a different this, or I'm going to have different friends, or I'm going to have different this, or I'm going to hang out on this particular uh, news channel. I'm going to hang out on this particular this because I want to hear whatever I want to hear. That's the nature of things, because when people say things that hurt us or might stir our pot a little bit or call us out a little bit, we'd, it's easier to just not do that, right? The truth, sisters and brothers, is not rooted in the teller. It's not true based on who the teller of the truth is. It either is or it is not. 
let's say in a somber moment, I tell you that I have cancer, or that you have cancer. That's a lot better. I like that one better. I tell you you have cancer, okay? And you may go, well, you're not a doctor, okay? When the doctor walks in and tells you, you believe him. But you don't believe them because they have cancer. You don't know if they have cancer or not. You believe that they have knowledge, right? Now, if they walk in and the doctor says, I don't know if you have cancer or not, but I have cancer too, you're going to feel sympathy and you're going to feel connected to them, but you still have no idea if you have cancer. So the question is not fundamentally, okay, am I, am I seeking to feel better? It is, what is true? And then once we know what truth is, now we figure out how to be compassionate in how we communicate it, how we deal with it, how we restore people gently, how we rebuke people gently, how we call people to a better way of life gently, how we enter into their space and help them understand the truth of God. But we have to start there. While I would prefer to hear very sobering news like you've got cancer from somebody I believe could empathize me, the news isn't more or less true because of the deliverer. The Bible reminds us in Hebrews 4, 13 to 14, the truth of God's word is kind of trans-experience. It's beyond us. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's talking to the church and he's telling them to watch out for those who are kind of these hyper-zealous uh, Jewish folks that are coming alongside and saying, hey, you need to do all of these things in order to become a legitimate Christian. You need to do all these Jewish things along with your Christianity. And Paul is saying, don't listen to them. And he goes through this long list of credentials that he has as a Jew. And he says, I was, this is how the uh, New Living Translation puts it. He says, I was a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was Captain Hebrew, okay? But then he says this. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yet, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ. He's saying all this other stuff, and he goes through his whole list. I knew the truth. I knew the law. I was circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin. He goes through this whole Hall of Fame list, and he says all of that stuff doesn't matter. And he tells them, stop defining yourself as less than you are. Your identity is not found in your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or any of those things. Those aren't identities. Those are things you put on your intake forms. Your identity, if you are a Christian, is found in one spot. Where is it? It's found in Jesus. And in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. It's greater. It's a deeper, more profound truth, a deeper, more profound identity. And we then understand all those other things in the light of that identity. It says, we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize. But only God understands. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. So then we have a high priest who is entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
It's only God understands. Yesterday, I, I went to the DMV. I put this picture up on social media as a test to you guys. So that, I showed up right before. That's my shadow there on the bottom part of the picture. That's what the San Marcos DMV looked like about 10 minutes before it opened yesterday. I pulled up. I was told you'll be in and out of there in 10 minutes. All right, now I'm convinced that it's not in the Bible, but it's possible that, that hell really is just a, a never-ending trip to the, to the DMV. It's possible. Um, and I also put this up as an empathy test. I wanted to see how my good friends responded to this. Um, most of you failed, okay? You get an F in empathy. Uh, in general, we divided into two categories, all right? The first one was the... Um, well, clearly, you're stupid category. Um, and these are the people that said, well, I get online and there are some DMVs that allow you to make an appointment now. Okay. Yeah. Really? Wow. You know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, really, you don't think I thought about making an appointment? So I said repeatedly in the comment line, uh, I tried, and the soonest appointment was five months from now. My, my license expires Monday. So I get my choice. Do I want to go Saturday morning, which is the fatted calf of my life, okay? Or do I want to go on my birthday? Am I spending my birthday at the DMV? No, I'm not. So I showed up to this, all right? Do you really think that I didn't? Am I looking for you to solve my problem? And do you think I'm going to walk out of there then, now that I'm at the DMV and in line, and go, well, you know what, I'm just going to go back home and get online and make an appointment. <laughs> Thoroughly useless information, people. <laughs> then there was like the Molotov cocktail crowd that was like, you should leave California. <laughs> it's not like this in Wyoming. Uh, you know, I <laughs> know Wyoming, they got like one old gal behind the counter named Flo, no teeth, and she like <laughs> handwrites out a, a name tag that says, you know, Tim on it, and that's like your registration. I mean, there's no, it's just like, oh, oh, okay. Officer pulls you over. Tim, okay. Hey, hey Tim. You know? uh, I mean, this is like a state with a lot of people where you, you have to organize yourself. They're like, leave California. Okay, I'm going to leave. I'm just going to pack up. I'm selling my house. Right, we're out of here. Forget the church. Forget the grand project. Forget it all. I'm not waiting in another DMV line. I'm going to go meet Flo in Wyoming, and we're going we're gonna to do it that way, right? But I sat there and I watched as we do this and I go, boy, 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 do I do this to people all the time or what? Oh, I do this to people all the time. Am I looking for you to solve the problem? No. What do I want from you? I want you to go, that stinks, man. Hashtag resist. Rage against the machine, baby. Let's do this. Let's rally. Let's, 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 uh, let's, uh, let's add them on Twitter, man. Let's, let's get the, the mayor of San Marcos and start pounding for a policy change. Let's do something that makes this better because this stinks. Isn't there a better way than this? There has to be. There has to be a better way. It's what I'm thinking. I just want somebody to go, yes, I want an amen is what I want. I don't want you to solve the problem. I don't want to move. I want you to just say yes. You know who did? There was one person. My wife. My <laughs> wife, Emily. <laughs> she, goes, she goes, oh, baby. I was like, yes. 
my woman right there, you know? <laughs> That's what we need. It's what we want. That's what we're after. And boy, when you got that feeling, it's like, oh. When you're spiritual and you're in a deep funk or you're in a very serious problem, your sisters and brothers coming around you and saying, hey, I'm so sorry this is happening. What the writer of Hebrews says is only God really understands. But before a word was on your lips, he knew it very well. He knows every hair on your head. You don't have a high priest in heaven looking down on you who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. No, Jesus, who's up there, he never changes. He reigns from heaven. He looks down. He's not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. And God gets this. He understands it's important that, that, that we feel each other's pain, so to speak. One of the most overlooked and most powerful books of the Bible is the book of Hosea, where he tasks his prophet to marry a prostitute who will be unfaithful to him so that he will know what it's like to be God, whose children and whose bride is unfaithful to him all the time. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness. God wants us to feel what he goes through. Parable of the prodigal son that we read all the time gives you an insight into what the heart of the father is like when the lost son's in the far country and when he's coming home. That stuff moves us, and it's good. It's not bad, as long as it doesn't become a substitute for love. Love is greater than empathy, sisters and brothers. There's a medical school in Berlin that realized at one point that um, the medical students were not having a good time understanding the plight of their, uh, more often than not, elderly patients. And so they created an aging suit. So you put this thing on, weighs about 10 kilograms, and it makes you feel like you're old. Now, some of us have been wearing that suit a long time, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm with you on that. But here's what it does. They call it the age man suit. Ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish colors, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket-style vest which presses uncomfortably against my chest, and padded gloves. It weighs around 10 kilograms. And so they now, at this particular medical school, they ask their medical school students to wear this thing around so that they can empathize with their patients. Love is greater than that. See, I can empathize with some, but I'm called to love all. And love is greater than empathy because it bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is not the approval of somebody. It's not an emotion like empathy is. The Bible's definition of love is long, and we don't have time to get into it this morning. I do like the definition that uh, my former professor, uh, Ron Highfield up at Pepperdine, wrote. He said, true love is a deep and habitual desire for the supreme good of another. I go, that's about as good as I can put it in a sentence. Empathy helps you feel like you're not alone. Love relentlessly seeks your good. It's stronger, it's purer, it rejoices with the truth, whereas empathy doesn't. Empathy is, does not necessarily rejoice with the truth. Love does, and it bears all things. It's stronger than empathy. Biblical love is not based on the words and deeds of the one that we're loving, 
It's rooted in the love of God for us. So I don't love you because I can relate to you. I love you because God first loved me. And because I know that you're precious in his sight. So precious that he would send his son to die for your sins. And because of that, I love you. Because I'm loved by God and because you're loved by God, I love you. Not because you've had it rougher than everybody else or because I can relate to your experience. It's higher than that. You can get the flavor for it in Galatians 6, 1 to 3. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone... You are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. How do you do it? You do it gently and humbly. And you come up alongside them in Christian love and you say, I'm going to share this with you. Throw your arm around my neck. We'll finish the race together. See, empathy would just say, I'm really sorry you're struggling with that sin. Let me tell you about the time that I sinned too. Okay, There's, there are times for that. Um, but love is greater, which is what we're called to. Empathy is like a, a step in the process of loving a person. But it's not love. Love is far, far deeper and greater, consistent, strong, pure. It has... A complete and utter fusion to the truth. Real love does. So, he says, therefore, because you have that kind of God who can sympathize with your weaknesses and he doesn't change and his truth is greater because he loves you, his throne is grace. So when you're hurting and when you're tempted and when these things come, go there. Go to him. God's throne is grace. It's a big climactic saying there in 416. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Or as a New Living puts it, I can't see behind the lights. You can read it. <laughs> the way I memorized it was, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of grace, what a name for it, huh? Oh, God's up there, he sees all my motives. That's what is said earlier in the passage. He sees all my motives, he sees everything's laid bare in front of him, he must hate me. No, 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 no. Therefore, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Like, he says, no, no, no. God does see it all. Yes, he's been through it all. Jesus came to earth. You don't have somebody in heaven who can't sympathize with your weaknesses. But don't just stay there and don't go looking just to other people for, for the satiation of your pain. Take it to God. Take it to the throne room of grace. Take it to God so that you can receive mercy. 
and find grace. Because there sits your king, the one who actually has the power to do something about it. The one who understands where you've been. He knew you before you were born. He knows everything about you. His word speaks truth into your life. His son came, lived on this earth, sympathizes now with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we were, yet was without sin. Now he's ascended, never changing, sitting at the right hand of God, wanting you to come to him with your pain and your temptations and your trials. And yes, by all means, grab some sisters and brothers and take them with you. But we are not, we're ambassadors for Christ, but there is no substitute for the real thing. It's being able to go to God and say, God, my heart's broken. Man, I'm depressed. God, I got this cloud hanging over my head. I don't know how to get rid of it. God, I'm exhausted. God, I've been trying to beat this particular sin for so long, and I just can't seem to beat it. I know your word says that by your power I can do it. I just don't know how. Help me to see how. God, my marriage is a complete train wreck. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know if it's fixable, but you know. Would you just show me what to do? Tell me what to do. And at the right time, I think what you're going to find is that God provides. He might provide people to empathize with you, to come alongside and say, you know what? My marriage hasn't been a big bowl of cherries either. Here's some things that helped us. Or just to simply say, I'm sorry you're going through this. Let me pray with you. Let me talk to Bill or Sally or Tom. Let's go, to, let's go talk to Pastor Tim. Let's, you know. But God knows what we need. That's always the thing that is tricky. When experience becomes the truth, the experience may be the same, but the people involved are different. So we always miss that variable. Not all divorces are the same. Not all marriages are the same. Not all men are the same. Not all women are the same. Okay, we're not the same. And that's part of the grace of God. You know, I remember, and Em and I were going through uh, premarital counseling. I don't, I, I can't remember if it was uh, Susan Gibney, the, the female that was um, teaching or her husband, Terry, uh, before he passed. But one of them said, you know, if you're both the same, one of you is unnecessary. <laughs> And so there, there's a reason the phrase opposite to tract is around and stuff like that. That sometimes a little diversity of experience is a good thing. It's a really good thing. So I don't know where you're at this morning. My guess is your life's not perfect. Mine's not either. But what if instead of us sitting there going, well, the real problem is I just need somebody to, to tell me the DMV's terrible. I agree. Um, what if the right answer is to go to God and to say, Father, I have no idea what to do here. And so if you want to bring some people into my life that will, will speak truth into my life, would you please do so? Would you let your words speak into my life in a way that is powerful and unique and, and fresh and let me pay attention to it? Would you give me the strength that I need to be more obedient? I already know what you think. I just can't obey. I'm not obeying. I'm a, a stiff-necked person. I just don't. Would you give me a softer heart, more obedient um, 
ways. Uh, we're now ga- about to gather around the throne of grace. We call it communion here. I'd like to ask those who are going to be serving the elements to go ahead and take your spots. As you do, I want to read this to you again as our communion prayer. Hebrews 4, 12 to 16. And allow the word of God to speak to our hearts this morning. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed from his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and will find grace to help us when we need it most. Our Heavenly Father, As we take the bread and the cup, we remember Jesus, our high priest in heaven, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, and they are many, Father. But we rejoice that you love us. We rejoice that you care about us. And so, Father, now we come to your throne of grace. Some of us need softer hearts. We need the ability to empathize more. To show more mercy. Some of us, Father, need a little bit of a tougher constitution to speak truth into the lives of people who we see around us or are ruining their lives or their relationships. Some of us, Father, are wounded and hurting. We ask for healing at the throne of grace. Father, some of us are walking strongly right now in, the, in your power, and I pray, Father, that that continue that those among us who are walking in the strength and power of the Lord continue to do so on a daily basis. Father, would we reject false identities, things that everybody else tells us make us who we are, rather than our identity as sons and daughters of God. May that be what shapes the way we see this world. When we look at other people, we look and we see your creation, people that you died for, people that you care about in ways that we can't possibly fathom. And Father, may we as we go about our lives, try to be more empathetic toward you and ask the question, how does God feel about what I'm doing? Is God pleased? What decision here would make God say, well done? Father, for the times we've broken your heart and made you feel bad, we repent of that. And we ask, Father, Uh, now that as we gather around the throne of grace that we would leave here feeling as though we've received grace from your hand. We take the bread, we take the cup, these symbols of your sacrifice for our sins today here at the throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.